The new Voyager mission project scientist is an old friend, and you'll hear from her this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Linda Spilker of NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab has been named only the second project scientist in the more than half-century history of Voyager. Our most frequent guest arrives to tell us about how honored she is to succeed the great Ed Stone and what those distant twin spacecraft are up to in interstellar space. Before we check in with Linda, you'll want to hear our own Bruce Betts prepare us for the end of the Planetary Society's fabulously successful LightSail 2 mission. It could happen any moment now as the little CubeSat with the big wings re-enters Earth's atmosphere. We'll also hear from Sarah Alamed about the Society's brand new and pretty darn cool program for kids called the Planetary Academy. The latest edition of our free weekly newsletter, The Downlink, is waiting for you at planetary.org slash downlink. But the real elephant in the solar system this week is the Artemis One mission. I'm hitting this week's planetary radio deadline just a few hours before NASA attempts again to launch that giant space launch system rocket toward the moon. In addition to the uncrewed Orion capsule, it carries a herd of CubeSats, including the near-Earth asteroid or Neoscout solar sail that will be released shortly after liftoff. I'm sorry I'm not at the Cape this time for what should be a spectacular night launch if it happens. My colleague Jason Davis has updated his comprehensive Artemis One launch guide. You'll find it at planetary.org. Godspeed, Artemis. What a long road it was to light sail, too. I was around for the Planetary Society's attempt to become the first to fly a solar sail. That was our Cosmos 1 back in 2005. That big spacecraft plunged into the sea when its Russian booster failed. We came back 10 years later with a radically different approach, a CubeSat called LightSail that has famously been described as being the size of a loaf of bread. The brief test mission of LightSail 1 was difficult but ultimately successful in showing that we were on the right path. Finally, in 2019, LightSail 2 rocketed into mid-Earth orbit atop a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. It spread its sails a few weeks later, becoming the first solar sail to maintain and raise its orbit propelled by nothing but the light of the sun. Now, nearly three and a half years later, long after anyone thought it would still be sailing, our little spacecraft, paid for by 50,000 individual donors, is nearing the end. My WhatsApp colleague, Bruce Betts, leads the light sail program. Hey, Chief Scientist and light sail program manager, you look kind of tired. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> I feel kind of tired. That would be the reason. Because our spacecraft, it's burning up in the atmosphere really in the next few days. And it's yeah. been kind of crazy monitoring that and reporting out on it. And uh, the, the weeping keeps me awake as well. <laughs> I'm glad you haven't lost your sense of humor. This is a big deal. Three and a half years, 18,000 orbits, 8 million kilometers, 5 million miles. That's right out of the first sentence of your new article. At planetary.org, LightSail 2 is about to burn up. And so I refer people there if you want more detail. But but give it to us in a nutshell, which actually is one of your subheadings. 
Well, that was actually reviewing the whole mission in a nutshell. Here, I will give you the burn-up in a nutshell. Basically, we always knew that this was going to be the end of the mission. We weren't launched high enough with uh, efficient enough or large enough sail to escape the Earth and keep going higher or even stay where we were. There's enough atmosphere. We think of space as being, you know, a vacuum, but it's not. Even 700 kilometers up, there are enough atoms, ions that you run into at 30,000 kilometers per hour that uh, it slows you down. And so we gradually, we fought it with solar sailing for a while, but then we dropped lower and then solar activity kicked up and that inflated the atmosphere and there was more atmosphere. So we dropped lower and it's a quite the snowball effect right at the, I mean, we're seeing huge drops now uh, of 20 kilometers a day, whereas usually we were in the tens of meters per day a while ago. But we're seeing these huge drops because as you get lower in the atmosphere, of course, it's, it, it drags more and then that drags you down faster and you're in denser atmosphere and et cetera, et cetera. So we are talking on the 15th. People aren't going to hear this until at the earliest, the morning of Wednesday, the 16th. Is this so imminent that, I mean, it could have already happened by the time this show is published? It could, but I, I don't think so. But then, uh, I'm not an expert in deorbiting, although I've been learning a lot lately. Um, <laughs> but it could within like the same day that this comes out. Uh, the, the different predictions that are out there from others and from our own predictions kind of say the 16th or the 17th are kind of most probable, which is really impressive considering we're still at over 350 kilometers up and uh, like space stations at 400 kilometers, but but we have a giant area and a little tiny mass, and they've got a giant area but a really big mass, so they uh, they don't uh, get as affected by drag. But even they have to boost every few weeks to stay in orbit. Please share how you know all this stuff. Where are these numbers coming from? Because it, it's a great answer. Data on the orbit is coming from the 18th Space Defense Squadron. Uh, of the U.S. Space Force, they track all the stuff they can in orbit, and they put out the information on a lot of the stuff publicly. And then they've done predictions, and Aerospace Corporation has, and our team has, that are models. But it's tricky because it's hard any time to predict this, but it's very hard because we have this unusual shape. So... No one else has done from that altitude something that's really big and really light. It's hard to get it right, but uh, at least uh, it's close. And the more it drops, the more obviously the predictions will improve. So it's imminent. So I would dare say we and others are still learning from LightSail 2 because this is uh, such a unique uh, reentry. Yeah, we certainly at the very least are contributing fairly unique not a data point to how something with a sail will deorbit that's actually useful because a lot of well, a lot a few groups out there including some of the members of our team working separately from the planetary society are looking at not solar sails but drag sails so mm. they never try to solar sail but at the end of a normal so to speak satellites lifetime they deploy one of these sails and then it increases the drag 
and it deorbits much faster. So it's uh, trying to address orbital debris and get stuff out of orbit faster. Uh, so we at least will contribute something to that. We're also trying to get still get information down on the orientation of the spacecraft and how it's responding to the going lower and lower. I'm still hoping, hoping that we get at least some thumbnails of additional pictures mm. down. We're running out of time, and it's getting trickier to track because the orbit's changing so fast that it's even harder to communicate than usual, which is usually fairly hard. Yeah, but you have gotten some really beautiful shots just in the last few days. Uh, Lightsail's been able to send down, and I hope people will uh, will take a look at those. Yeah, and we've got a, a new one up in the article and also on the pictures page of Lightsail. Do we need to worry? It's just going to burn up, I hope. I wasted so much of our team's time trying to figure out if we could target you, Matt. <laughs> but they were like, Bruce, you're an idiot which they say fairly frequently. Uh, actually, they don't say it. I just think they think it. Um, and so, no, we're one. We live out of the latitude band yeah. that light sail is going in. We're, constrained, we're in a 24-degree inclination orbit, which means when it comes through the atmosphere, it will be somewhere between 24 degrees north and 24 degrees south. But also, it's small enough that it will completely burn up vaporize long before anything hits the ground. So helmets not required, at least not for our spacecraft. Is it possible, I mean, you mentioned this in your article, that uh, there might not be a gap in having a solar sail mission underway? Yeah, it's uh, quite the intriguing coincidence that we've been there three and a half years and NIA Scout, NASA's uh, asteroid exploring solar sail mission that will take the next steps out with solar sailing. It's we're coming down and they're going up. And so, uh, as you've we've discussed various times, they're trying to launch on SLS the, as part of Artemis One. And when they deploy, they will have uh, a little bit of overlap. We'll see. They're trying to launch tonight again, the night of the fifteenth to the sixteenth. And we're not trying, but are succeeding in coming down in the next few days. Mm -hmm. So well, we'll, we'll pass the torch, so to speak, as we're burning up in a fireball. <laughs> Hang in there, guy. Les Johnson, by the way, the leader of the NIA Scout mission, will uh, be back on the show very soon. Yeah, that's great. We will continue to track this. Uh, again, your article is at planetary.org. Easy to find, and uh, that's where you can also track... Uh, almost in real time, right? The the actual numbers and see the graphs as a light sail proceeds toward its impending doom. Honorable doom. Honorable doom. Oh, it is. It's lasted much longer than we had, uh, we had hoped. Hey, Matt. Hasta la vista, baby. I'll be back. <laughs> he will be back because uh, he's not only the program manager for the light sail project, he is our light sail program. He is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. And that means he's, he's going to join us in a few minutes after we hear from Linda Spilker and uh, Sarah, who's coming up in just a moment. Uh, but Bruce will be back for What's Up. Sarah, I don't think you were fortunate enough to be uh, one of our colleagues at the Society when LightSail was launched, but you certainly have been around for the majority of this three-and-a-half-year mission. I, I, what has it meant to you? 
LightSail just uh, mechanically as an example of new technologies is really impressive. But I remember the day that, that LightSail launched. I wasn't with all of you in person, but I was at home watching the broadcast online because mm, I was going to be producing a segment about it for, for Griffith Observatory's All Space Considered. So watching the way that any Falcon Heavy or, or any SpaceX rocket relands those boosters is always a great moment. But <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, early on when I was kind of learning about light and, and relativity and, and all of the practical applications, I remember reading about solar sailing and about the potential for it to take us to new star systems. I just remember being completely mind blown by it and thinking, how could we ever make that happen? I, I might be a little old lady by the time that becomes a reality. So when I learned that light sail was going to be a real thing, and not just that it was a, a real a real mission that was getting produced, but that it was backed by 50,000 people around the world as a passion project. It just makes it feel so much more important and, and like a pivotal moment in history. So you were there. Kind of, in spirit. Yeah, you were there for the beginning, at least. And I'm, I'm, it's so fun to hear. I didn't know, Griffith, that you were producing a, a special segment about light sail for that. Well, it looks like you're going to be around for the big finish, which, uh, who knows, as I said to Bruce, might even happen by the time people hear this program. People I know can't see me on the broadcast right now, but I'm actually wearing my light sail necklace. Oh. It was given to me as a gift uh, by my partner for my last birthday because light sail has been a big part of my life for the last few years. I get excited every time a new a new image comes down and it's it's sad that it's going to burn up, but it's just the beginning of a whole new generation of solar sailing spacecraft. So I'm, I'm happy that I get to keep this necklace with me so I can just remember light sail forever. <laughs> What a great guy. <laughs> what, a, <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a great gift. Um, there is something else that we're excited about at the Planetary Society. It's, it's not an ending. It's a beginning. Tell us about the Planetary Academy. This is so exciting because I, I know that outreach to children and fostering their love of space has been something that our founders wanted for our organization since the very beginning. It's wonderful to finally be able to launch the Planetary Academy. And for those who haven't been following this, this effort, the Planetary Academy is our membership program for kids aged nine years or younger. For a lot of people, including me, our love of space science and exploration started when we were just children. So this is an opportunity to get the kids in your life a membership to the Planetary Academy and begin their journey toward understanding more about our place in space. Children who are going to be enrolled in this program are going to receive quarterly adventure packs. And these are going to teach them all about our solar system, our planet and its relationship with the moon, and then ultimately about the inner and outer solar system. So they have a good picture of what's going on in our place in space and beyond. These adventure packs, at least for the first one, will include a welcome letter from our CEO, Bill Nye. So that would be really exciting for kids, I hope. Uh, also an official <laughs> membership card for them. And then all kinds of fun little activities. So stickers, activity books, trading cards, games, and things like that to really get them involved in the adventure through space. I've been waiting for something like this for young people. Get them while they're young, like Bill says. You've got to get them interested in science by the time they're 10. And that's what this is all about. It realizes a dream of the society and of Bill's uh, that we have had for a long time. I am so impressed. I've seen the materials. I can't wait to sign up my grandson. And now's the time to do it, I guess, because it's a little bit cheaper right now, right? 
Yeah, we have a special launch introductory price. So anybody who's joining into this program before November 28th will be able to purchase the program at $89 a year. Now, you could still join after that, but if you do, it's going to go up to $99 a year. Still a great price for what the, what we're offering to kids. This program will only be available to children that live in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. We're really hoping that if this program goes well, we can expand it to other countries in the future. But for now, it's limited to those countries. Yeah, we're sorry about that. Um, we, we would love to expand this across the world. And if it's as successful as I expect it will be, I, I hope that that will not take too long for us to achieve. Sarah, they all they have to do is go to planetary.org. It's right there. It pops right up right now. Thank you uh, very much for the introduction. And uh, I look forward to talking again next week. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. You can get to the Planetary Academy page directly at planetary.org slash academy. Sarah Alamed is the Planetary Society's digital community manager. She'll become the host of this show on January 4, 2023. Our toll-free line is still open to anyone in North America who would like to leave Sarah or me a message, 844-PLANRAD. And you've got till November 30 to vote for the best space events and more of 2022. Your ballot awaits at planetary.org slash best of 2022. I'll be back for a wonderful conversation with Linda Spoker after this message from Q himself, actor, director, writer, and producer John Delancey. Star Trek has always represented the hope for a better future. I don't think you can have that without pushing boundaries. And in the case of space, that is all that we're doing, is pushing those boundaries and finding out more. Always finding out more. And I think it's really important as a human being, as a society, to be able to do something like that. And this is where we do it. Um, 200, 300 years ago, we did it on sailing ships across the ocean. Space is important to me because it's kind of a metaphor for risk-taking, tremendous rewards, possible rewards, being more expansive in one's thinking and opening oneself up to the infinite possibilities. Probably the biggest thing that differentiates Star Trek from almost everything else is the community in which you enter. Well, the planetary society is that type of a community. If you share like me, the need to expand into infinite possibilities, as my character does in Star Trek, and as I have said to Picard on more than one occasion, then certainly joining the Planetary Society is a good way to go. Join the Planetary Society. Linda Spilker, welcome back to Planetary Radio, our most frequent guest here for one more visit, at least while I'm the host. And who knows, I hope we'll have more chances to talk in the future. Mostly, it's, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you. Someone needs to update your JPL bio page. It leaves off with Cassini Project Scientist 2010 to the present, which is fine. You got a new job. What does it feel like to be the Voyager Project Scientist? It's a tremendous opportunity. I'm, I'm really grateful and happy to have it. Uh, Ed Stone retired, and I was asked to step in for him. Of course, you know, Ed Stone is truly the heart and soul of Voyager, and will continue to be so. He's following the Voyager science. And so I feel as though I'm just following in his footsteps 
following that dream for Voyager, going into interstellar space, and we're just going to go as far as we can go. As long as those two spacecraft stay healthy and keep working, we're going to keep exploring. What is it? Uh, second star on the right and straight on toward morning. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. You know, we had that event that we covered here on Planetary Radio, that wonderful anniversary event. And it was so delightful. I mean, you had a great turnout, first of all. So many great people uh, who have served the mission over the years. At that point, you had already come back as deputy project scientist, of course. And Ed was there as well. And it was just delightful that after all these years, he was still project scientist and able to participate in that celebration. It was very gratifying. Yes, it was wonderful just to see all of the people, many of whom I hadn't seen probably for a decade or more, come back for Voyager's 45th anniversary. And already we're thinking ahead to what the 50th anniversary might be like. That's great. There is another connection that I read about, uh, which I, I hope you can say something about. It's the person that you are training as uh, to take on the job of deputy project scientist, the one that you just moved up from. And she has a connection to Ed. That's right. That's right. Her name is Jamie Rankin. Uh, she's currently at Princeton University, and she was Ed Stone's last graduate student. Ah. In fact, she started with him in 2012, just after Voyager 1 had crossed into interstellar space. And then she graduated in 2018, and she worked with the Cosmic Ray team uh, analyzing their data, and that was part of her thesis. So I'm very excited. I'd gotten to know her. Uh, earlier on in the mission, and I'm very excited to be able to train her and have her carry Voyager forward because, you know, everything goes well. It could be the 2030s until ah. we you know, keep sending back those last data. Okay, so that's my next question. As I asked Ed every time he was on, what's the health of the spacecraft? How much more juice are we going to get out of those RTGs? Well, right now, Matt, both spacecraft continue to operate successfully, and they're sending back data just about every day on interstellar space. Both are now flying in the local interstellar medium. Uh, Voyager 1 headed north of the ecliptic, Voyager 2 headed south, based on the, the little nudges they got with their last flybys of the planets. Voyager 1 is currently at 158 AU, if you can imagine. you know the, That's the distance between the Earth and the Sun, so far surpassing its... Uh, original intention, you know, to fly by Neptune, but much, much further than that. And Voyager 2 is at 132 AU, and they're, each one is going a little over, Voyager 2 is going about 3.1 AU per year, Voyager 1 about 3.6. And so they're just gradually getting further and further away from the sun. In fact, it, it takes about 22 hours one way to communicate with Voyager for the data to come back from Voyager to these deep space network stations to the Earth. And if you think about that, that's almost a light day, 22 hours for the data to come back. And so then it's another 22 hours for a signal to travel from Earth back to Voyager. So you have to be patient to communicate <laughs> with Voyager these days. It, it just takes a little bit of time. Well, recently, Voyager 1 had some trouble with its attitude control system. And what happened is the attitude control system information suddenly became garbled. The engineering information that tells us the status of that data just we just couldn't make sense of it. But the spacecraft continued to operate normally and send back science data as though nothing were wrong. We just couldn't communicate with it or understand what it was telling us. And through some very careful detective work, we figured out that what had happened is, for a reason we don't know why it happened, it switched over to the backup flight data system computer, which we knew was not working correctly. 
And so when we commanded it back to the system that was working, all of a sudden, all of the attitude control data suddenly cleared up and, it, and the problem was solved. But we're still trying to figure out why it happened. Uh, clearly, we don't want that to happen again or something else to happen. But right now, both spacecraft are operating and successfully returning data. There are so many, I don't want to call them miracles because this is the work of humanity, uh, but it is near miraculous to think of what is happening here. It also strikes me that this ought to be in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most distant repair job ever accomplished. <laughs> That's absolutely true, Matt. The, the most distant spacecraft and the most distant, very careful understanding of what's wrong and be able to fix it. Uh, with the distances we're at. And if you think about it, those Voyager computers are tiny by comparison to the computers that now fly on the spacecraft or even have in your iPhone. Ah, that's what, yeah, I'm sure my iPhone is vastly smarter than, uh, than either of the Voyager spacecraft, but much less adventurous. I, I go back to those RTGs, the radioisotope thermoelectric generators, gradually ticking down as they work their way through multiple half-lives. Uh, you talked about into the 2030s, I know you're having to turn stuff off as we lose power. How much longer? What are the estimates? How much longer can we keep things going? Well, it turns out, Matt, that each Voyager is losing about four watts of power per year. And so we've been slowly turning off the redundant systems and even in the last couple of years, turned off the heaters to the particle instruments. They're on the boom that holds the scan platform about halfway out. And so one by one, we've turned off the heaters on those instruments, and they dropped some 60 or 70 degrees <laughs> in temperature, and yet all of them continued to work. Yeah, I'm laughing because I remember you saying this, I think, when we last talked at that celebration, and how <laughs> amazed everybody was. After all these years, they're working at temperatures far below what they were designed for. Absolutely. And it's, in fact, in some ways, uh, the seal-to noise has gotten better. Some of these detectors <laughs> like being colder. Uh -huh. And so it's been some recalibration effort. But uh, every single one of them, even one of them, the low-energy charged particle instrument, has a little stepper motor that steps it through eight different quadrants to look in different directions. And that little stepper motor is happily still stepping and still sending back data uh, on all of its channels. So it's, it, it really is an amazing story. I want to make sure people understand what we're talking about here. Moving parts, a tiny electric motor working in space, radiation, cold, vacuum for over 45 years. It, it is incredible. And that, that's true across the whole spacecraft, that those systems all keep working. And, and I know in the era that Voyager was built, and the engineers were, were so proud of what they were doing, and they knew it had to last out to Neptune for Voyager 2. And so if they had a chance to put in a slightly better part or whatever, they would do that. And so just very carefully built up the, the best spacecraft they could. The other at least semi-miracle that I want to bring up here is the one I, I, we've probably talked about in every conversation that has mentioned Voyager on this program for 20 years. And that is what you said, the Deep Space Network, still talking to these spacecraft on a regular basis, trying to pick out that tiny stream of photons coming from so far away with, with those dishes here on Earth. I mean, hats off to the DSN. Absolutely, Matt. Absolutely. At, a, at 160 bits per second, the, the data are not coming back very quickly. Although on Voyager 1, we are still using the tape recorder. 
Ah. The tape is still moving across the heads. We record data from the plasma wave spectrometer, you know, just a frame or two a week, and then play back those data. And that's at a much higher rate. We can't really control. We are at the lowest rate we can get with the with that tape recorder. And so we have to start arraying four and sometimes five stations, the 70 meter with multiple 34 meters to catch that very faint signal from space. And we're hoping to out, out to about 2026 or so to keep getting those data back because that was one of the more interesting, more recent discoveries uh, from Voyager 1, that there's a very faint signal in their data that uh, actually it was a graduate student, uh, Stella Oker, figured out how to process the data, pick up that faint signal and provide the plasma density essentially continuously by looking at those recorded frames and, and very carefully processing them in a new way. And so we're hoping to continue to be able to play back those data, you know, for another several years. But, but slowly we're having to turn things off and get more and more creative about what we turn off next and, and how we manage the data. And so it's, it's just a very interesting time, actually, to think about how to carefully manage these spacecraft well beyond the warranty, much further than they were initially expected to go, and to manage that. It's possible Voyager 1 might make it out to 200 AU, and that would be the 2030s. And that it would only probably have two instruments still working, probably the magnetometer and the plasma wave spectrometer, because we will, over the next several years, have to slowly start turning off the science instruments uh, for their power. We hope maybe another three years or so we can wait, but at some point, that, that's the next step. All right. Well, I look forward to celebrating the 55th anniversary, I suppose, <laughs> of the mission. I, I, I hope to be around for that just as much as I hope uh, the Voyager spacecraft are. Linda, you, were, you stay one step ahead of me. I wanted to go next to what are we continuing to learn from the Voyagers that are telling us about this region of interstellar space that we've never visited before. Well, when we get out uh, now past the heliopause, we can suddenly start to test some of the ideas and theories we had about interstellar space. That's the boundary where the sun's influence stops. It's basically a balance between the sun, the solar wind pushing outward and interstellar space. And at that boundary, once we crossed it, we're making measurements. And I think one of the, the biggest surprises is that the sun's influence continues out past that boundary. Uh, if there's a big event, a coronal mass ejection, something on the sun, we actually are seeing shocks and pressure ramps that are propagating out quite some distance into interstellar space. Uh, we're measuring the energetic particles that are of solar origin, but also of the origin from other stars uh, in interstellar space. Uh, the electron densities, they were expected to plateau once we got out into uh, across the heliopause, but they haven't. In some cases, they've continued to pile up in, and increase, maybe piling up ahead of the, the heliopause. Uh, cosmic rays as have both the density and the composition. And what's interesting is the cosmic rays themselves display unexpected periodicities, and we're not sure what's out there modulating uh, the cosmic rays. Uh, the magnetic field for interstellar space, we were expecting it once we crossed out of the sun's influence, it would rotate into the interstellar direction. And that just hasn't happened yet. For both voyagers, it's still predominantly dominated by that solar direction. And we're not sure when we'll see that rotation happen and why it's uh, persisting and influenced so much by the sun. And of course, there's a lot of questions about the shape of the heliosphere. Is it like a giant bubble? Does it look more like a comet with a long tail? Is it maybe, as some people think, twisted like a croissant huh. with two lobes to it? There are lots of ideas. And 
As the Voyager mission continues, we hope to be able to provide more information to the modelers to help better understand the actual shape of the heliosphere. If you think about it, you know, the Sun has a heliosphere, but other stars have the equivalent, we call them astrospheres. Studying our own heliosphere, we're now going to be learning more about those other stars. And Voyager's gone from planetary to heliophysics and now into astrophysics, so covering uh, you know, many different types of science along the way. It occurs to me that if you want to figure out the shape of this uh, gigantic body that surrounds our solar system, it's pretty useful to have two different spacecraft going in two different directions. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Going above and below the ecliptic, above, above and below essentially the nose of the heliopause, uh -huh. and making measurements that we can then compare those. And we also use information from other spacecraft inside the heliosphere. Uh, New Horizons is one of them. It basically can provide us information about what's coming and what Voyager should expect to see. And so we have sort of a synergy with the spacecraft that observe the sun and can let us know uh, what we'll be seeing. What's interesting, there's a lag, as you would expect, uh, that Voyager 1 right now is seeing information from the solar minimum. And mm. so in a few more years, it will start to see a change as we head back to the solar maximum, as seen from Voyager 1. Wow. I, I thought of this question earlier when you said that we're seeing Voyagers able to detect these coronal mass ejections that we see as we observe the sun. But of course, we're only one AU away by definition. How long does it take when something happens on the sun for the effect of that to get out that far? I mean, we're not, we're not quite talking about the speed of light, obviously. Right, right. It's, it's quite a few years to propagate out to the distance of Voyager. And what it does is it, those shocks interact with the heliopause. And then the, from the heliopause, there's a shock that's generated from that that propagates into interstellar space. And so uh, in the plasma wave spectrometer data, in the magnetic field data, we see the effects of these shocks. And since we're now have been looking more at solar minimum, the number, you know, there used to be a, a one per year or so, have sort of tapered off, and we'll see if they increase again as we start to see information from the sun that uh, starts back up towards solar maximum. So theorists and those modelers you mentioned, they must be following this data pretty carefully, and, and I, I imagine it's affecting our models of, of the solar system and other solar systems. That's right, Matt. We're getting information to better understand the interactions between the, the heliosphere and interstellar space. And what's really nice is there's a group, we call them guest investigators. Uh, many of these are early career young scientists that are eagerly coming in and working with the Voyager teams and coming up with the models to try and better understand exactly what's happening in interstellar space. And even to tease out, there's still some questions about what exactly happened in the heliosheath, you know, that region right before the heliopause, and how to put all of the pieces together into a more global model. So it's really wonderful to have these you know, young scientists who are enthusiastic and excited and transferring that knowledge about the Voyager data to the next generation. And, you know, and for future missions, if we ever have uh, other missions that go out as far as Voyager's going, or perhaps even further, uh, for interstellar probe mission, mm. uh, it would be really good to have as much information to inform that mission as we can. How big is the Voyager team now? I, it can't be more than a fraction of what it was 40 years ago. Oh, Matt, that's absolutely true. On the engineering side, there's maybe 
between 15 and 20 people. You know, they're not uh, full-time, and they're, they're the ones that are sort of working and flying the spacecraft. Each of the Voyager teams is quite small. We have five instruments across, four on one spacecraft, five on the other. And those teams are pretty small, but they're really augmented by these guest investigators. The program that uh, NASA is funding to provide additional resources and scientists to help us understand those data. But it's, oh, so much smaller than those days of flying by the planets where you just had you know, a big team of scientists and a team of engineers uh, because there was so much going on with both Voyagers. I'm going to turn away from Voyager, give you a chance to say anything, if you would like, about the Cassini mission, uh, the one that uh, first got us talking to each other years and years ago. Uh, of course, it has sadly been over now for years, but really, we've also talked about the fact that it's really not over. Is there anything that you uh, want to call out uh, that is uh, still ongoing uh, because of what Cassini and Huygens were able to tell us? Yeah, there's a couple of new papers, Matt, that have come out recently from Cassini. One involved the ultraviolet spectrometer. Uh, they had a series of occultations of the rings, you know, using a star, but they also had about 40 occultations using the sun. And so they've now been able to carefully analyze and look at those and get some information about the particle size distribution of Saturn's rings. When you look in the ultraviolet, you're seeing really some of the very smallest particles. And so trying to understand Saturn's rings and, and their age and where they might come from, yeah, all of that's very important. And especially as we look at other missions, uh, there's going to be a Uranus orbiter with probe, flagship class mission. And, you know, what we can learn about Saturn's rings, we can then apply at Uranus and the other, other planets as well. So that paper just recently came out, a more complete analysis of all of the 41 solar occultations uh, in the ultraviolet. And another one has to do with the ion and neutral mass spectrometer. They made a series of very interesting measurements in those grand finale orbits as we dove mm. in between the planet and the rings. And they found a very complex, surprisingly complex spectrum during those final orbits. And there indicates there's a strong compositional interaction between the rings and the atmosphere of Saturn itself. And they think that maybe a large amount of the signal that they saw was perhaps coming from vaporized ices and organics oh. from the rings that are now flowing into Saturn's atmosphere. And so a, a paper came out recently going into more detail and trying to understand uh, from those series of, of flybys that they took data to try and understand what exactly is happening uh, uh, between uh, Saturn and its rings. And there's such a treasure trove of data on Cassini that there will be people looking at it, I think, for decades, trying to understand and put the pieces together to come up with a more complete picture of what we know about the Saturn system. And a final paper that's uh, very interesting has to do with the detection of a, of a new kind of radiation. It's a, they call it the anomalous myriometric radiation. They've nicknamed it SAM, so it's the Saturn Anomalous Myriometric Radiation. And this came from the radio and plasma wave spectrometer on board Cassini. And they saw a series of these events. It's not like the, the Saturn kilometric radiation. It's something slightly different. And in very carefully looking at this large suite of data, they found a over 190 of these events. They seem to be stronger and more frequent in close to Saturn. And so this paper is just identifying them, pointing them out. And so a lot of work still remains to be done to try and understand exactly 
the connection to the magnetosphere and what the source of these new SAM, this new SAM radiation is. So those are the, some of the more recent papers uh, from Cassini. To clarify, when you say a new type of radiation, it's not like, you know, something that they invent for an episode of Star Trek. It's, it's something coming from the planet and we just don't know what the source is yet? That's right. I should just say it's a newly detected type of radiation that they've seen called the Saturn anomalous myriometric radiation. They have trying to characterize its distribution, frequency, duration, bandwidth. Some of these, I guess, last as much as 11 hours. And uh, just carefully looking through the data, they're able to identify and, and find these. And it just shows you, you know, here, five years after, mm. more than five years after the Cassini mission ended, still we're finding new things in the in the data. And I think that's very exciting. It is. I, I appreciate the clarification, first of all. That'll keep my, my uh, nightmare of some tabloid or awful website saying Saturn scientist says new form of radiation threatens Earth, which, you know, it happens. Uh, <laughs> but also, right. what I like to say, you know, planetary science missions, the gifts that keep on giving. You're still batting a thousand because I wanted to ask you, about that potential Uranus orbiter as well, which, as we know, we reported on the show, was the top recommendation in the decadal study from the National Academies for a new mission, at least, uh, last spring, uh, that we need a, a, a mission to the outer planets, which is what I've been hearing from you and other people, including your husband, Tom Spilker, and so many other people for so many years. It, it sounds like, one... Cassini has played a role in encouraging the academies to uh, make that a top recommendation, and two, that we can achieve it. We did it at Saturn. We can move one more planet out. That's right, Matt. And what's so exciting for me about the Uranus orbiter with Probe is that there's only been one spacecraft that's flown by Uranus and <laughs> Neptune. Your spacecraft. And <laughs> That's right. That was Voyager 2. And that was back, you know, for, for Uranus back in 1986. So it's been a while since we've been out there to take a look at what's going on at, at this planet. And so it would be an orbiter, you know, similar to Cassini, probably full of all different science instruments, carry an atmospheric probe to actually go in and probe the atmosphere of an ice giant. These planets, uh, Uranus and Neptune, are, are different from Jupiter and Saturn. And so a chance to really study the system in detail. There are some incredible moons in the Uranus system, you know, tiny Miranda that looks like it's been torn apart and thrown back together. And, and some of the surfaces that look young, compared, they're not heavily cratered, look young like some of the moons in the, the Saturn and in the Jupiter system. And of course, a very intriguing and interesting ring system. So really be exciting to go back and study Uranus in more detail. And so there's a lot of effort underway to start to identify what are the key science goals that you would have for a mission to go back to Uranus. And, and from there, then you start to talk about what instruments do you want to take and then what kind of a spacecraft do you need to build to carry those instruments out to Uranus. So uh, we have a ways to go, but it's very exciting to think about the fact that there now will be another mission to an outer planet, one that we've only visited a single time. And, and I've been told that there are teams uh, already devoted to 
putting together these mission plans, laying out how it might work at JPL and at some of the other centers like uh, the Applied Physics Lab, APL, out in, and on the East Coast and, and uh, elsewhere around the country. So uh, as you say, we have a long ways to go, but it's nice to know that at least it's on the drawing boards. I think it'd be great if we, we had the funds. I mean, that's always the problem. How much money do we have to, to actually send a pair of spacecraft, similar mm. to what we did with Voyager, and send one to Uranus and one to Neptune. Oh, gosh, that would be Only fantastic. we had enough money, that would be a, a, a great pair of missions. They're very different places. There was something I was going to mention when we were talking about Cassini, and I'll bring it up now. It's my curiosity, wondering whether, if it had not been for Cassini, if we would now be seeing the Dragonfly mission coming together, uh, because we would just not know that much about Titan. Uh, probably, I'm guessing, not enough to be able to confidently send a, an octocopter there to fly around. Matt, I agree. For the Dragonfly mission, what Cassini found, especially with the Huygens probe parachuting to the surf surface, the combination of the orbiter plus the Huygens probe really provided enough detailed information to put together a mission like Dragonfly and also some of the science questions that need to be answered. Prior to that, we, we really pretty much just had the Voyager information and we hadn't been able to pierce through the haze of Titan to even see what the surface looked like, much less understand the weather and the atmosphere in detail. So certainly uh, in this case, uh, starting with the, the Voyager information, we built the instruments for Cassini, including the radar and ion neutral mass spectrometer, you know, just basically to help study Titan. And now we've got Dragonfly to go back, land in multiple places, and really get, get down there and study the surface in detail. What an exciting, exciting mission. Absolutely. And I'm kicking myself now with apologies to our friends at the European Space Agency for not mentioning Huygens once again, because after all, it took us down to the surface of, uh, of Titan. Linda, I hope that you have many, many more years ahead of you uh, doing this exciting work. But of course, you've been at it for many years as well. And there is a question as we near the end here that I don't think I've ever thought to ask. I, I'm pretty sure I never asked Ed Stone or anybody else with the Voyager mission. So I'll ask you now. Star Trek, the motion picture came out in 1979. I think you were fairly new on the Voyager mission team in 1979. I got to think that a bunch of you went to see the Star Trek movie and there at the core, the center of the premise of that movie was something called V'ger. <laughs> what do you remember? What was the reaction to that? Oh, I absolutely remember that, Matt. It was so exciting. I had started on Voyager in 1977. I was fortunate enough to be actually at the pad, watch the launch. And so, yes, we went to see the movie. And in fact, what had happened is several of the friends I went with had seen the movie already. Oh. And so they knew what was coming. But I didn't. I didn't figure out that V'ger meant Voyager. <laughs> And so we, we get to the end of the movie and here they are, you know, walking down and, and I'm all, it's Voyager, it's Voyager. And everybody was looking at me and <laughs> not looking at the, not watching the movie. And it was just so wonderful to think that uh, there on Star Trek, you know, one of my favorite shows growing up would watch it all the time. There was Voyager 6 completing its mission in a very amazing way, you know, collecting all of this data and all of this information. So that was really a fun, really, really a fun time. Where the, another one uh, with Mimas, with the big crater on its surface, 
looking so much like the Death, Death Star, Star on Star Wars and making that comparison and just really that really the fun times on Voyager for all of those planetary flybys. So happy to be part of that. Yeah. I had a very similar experience in the theater. I was there with a bunch of friends, college friends, uh, and uh, a V'ger, V'ger. And then you see it in the distance. And I thought, oh, it's Voyager. <laughs> they, shh, shh, quiet. <laughs> I know. I, I, I did the same thing. I just shout out, it's Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we've now ruined the big uh, uh, reveal at the end of the movie. For all its flaws, I'm still a fan of that uh, that first Star Trek movie. So I do recommend that people see it. Linda, it has always been and I hope will continue to be uh, one of the, my favorite experiences doing this show to be able to talk to you as we have watched these missions develop over a couple of decades. Um, let's keep it up. Oh, absolutely, Matt. Let's stay in touch. And just want to congratulate you on your retirement and a, a chance to do what you love the most and, and continue on and keeping and learning and keeping in touch with uh, the, the missions and the projects as well. So congratulations on your retirement. Thank you so much, Linda. And uh, I will say to you, it means more for somebody working on Voyager than it does for most people. Ad Astra to the stars. Yes, absolutely. Agree. As promised at the opening of today's show, we are back with the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. It's Bruce Betts. It hasn't come down in the last uh, 20 minutes, has it, since we recorded that first segment? Oh, shoot. I didn't check. Yeah, don't look. Don't look. I don't want you to get more depressed. What's up other than Light Sail 2, Bruce? Nothing. Nothing is up. Man. Nothing of significance. <laughs> Everything's down. Everything's down. All right. Just kidding. There's still all sorts of good stuff to see. Plus, you can't really see Light Sail 2 very well unless you... Oh, never mind. Won't be there to see anyway. <sighs> so anyway... Uh, we've got Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky up after after sunset, uh, hanging out in the east or south, hanging out high overhead if you're in the southern hemisphere. Jupiter looking super bright, brighter than the brightest star, and Saturn looking kind of yellowish. But we've got reddish Mars. It's just spectacular. It's really approaching the brightness of Jupiter. It'll keep growing in brightness until its uh, closest approach to Earth in their orbits in early December. And right now, if you look at it, it's hanging out between the horns, the tips of the horns of Taurus. Ooh, be careful, Mars. <laughs> it's right in the middle right now, roughly, between the much dimmer than Mars stars Elnath and Tianguan. Mars is looking much brighter now than Aldebaran, the reddish star of Taurus that it used to be similar in brightness a few months ago. Now it's much brighter. Also kind of near Mars, but a little ways away is the bright star Capella. So a whole Mars party. And I failed to mention that's in the evening uh, within, a, within a couple hours after sunset over in the east or later in the evening, higher up. And then one more thing, we've got a meteor shower. The Leonids, famous for huge meteor storms, about every 33 years, and this is not one of those years. Uh, the last one was 2001, and so we expect uh, average kind of shower, 10 to 15 meteors. That's peaking on the night of the 17th and the 18th of November, uh, but also will be have extra meteors before and after that date. 
moon's coming up, uh, will interfere with visibility, but as long as you look elsewhere, you'll do okay. But we got the Geminids, much uh, higher average rate coming up in December, so I look forward to that. On to this week in space history. It was this week in uh, 1969 that Apollo 12 successfully landed humans on the moon for the second time. And think about that, quite a delay from Apollo 11. Uh, and yeah, it, it went beautifully. Couldn't say that about Apollo 13, of course, but, but Apollo 12, just a perfect mission. Well, they did have excitement at the launch when they got hit by lightning twice. Yeah, there's that. But they built that rocket well. <laughs> yeah, it worked. They did, they did good stuff. Uh, it was fun time. Speaking of fun times, on to... Random space fact. <laughs> All right. We'll take that for this week. We'll give you a bye. Okay. Thank you. So LightSail 2 will have been in space for almost three and a half years. LightSail 1, the test mission, which never attempted to solar sail and was designed to test all of our components and deployment, uh, was a launch to a much lower orbit. It was in space for about 25 days. And once they deployed the sail, they only were in space for another roughly seven days. Because again, the, the high drag of having that sail out and the fact that they were in a much, much lower, they were in a similar orbit to where we have been the last few days. Now that's an interesting random space fact. That, that right there, similar orbit at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I exaggerate. They're in a similar perigee altitude. They're in a highly elliptical orbit, and we're in a much less, much closer to circular orbit. And it certainly did prepare us for uh, the success of LightSail too. It did. We learned a lot. Of, we learned a lot of things, which is a nice way of saying a lot of things didn't work, hmm. and uh, we came up with ways to try to make sure those things would work, or that it was capable of fixing itself. Uh, if there is an issue on light cell two. So, and light cell one was successful at its basic uh, mission, which was to get all the way through deployment of a sail. And, and it did. We go on to the trivia question. I ask what former JPL director or directors have won the U.S. National Medal of Science? How do we do, Matt? This is interesting. There were a lot of people who only came up with one person. I don't know if anybody came up with two. But apparently, there were three. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> As we learn in this poem from Gene Lewin in Washington, the first director so selected von Karman was his name. His leadership in aeronautics would garner him acclaim. In the discipline engineering recognized by Gerald Ford, presented to William Pickering, the second director to win this award, and third for physical sciences, Edward Stone, selected here, directing the Voyager mission out beyond the heliosphere. <laughs> That's very nice. Well done. We got this from uh, Timothy Myers, listener in California. Dr. Von Karman was the first recipient, apparently, of the National Medal of Science. That's according to Timothy. Here's our winner. He has been listening for a very long time. And I think, I don't know if my records are correct about this because they're not perfect. But if I'm right, Ed Lupin in California this is his first win. Congratulations, wow. Edward. We're going to send you, Edward, a Planetary Society Kick Asteroid Rubber Asteroid. Congratulations once again. Congratulations. 
We'll close with this from uh, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. He only salutes one of these recipients. This National Medal of Science, the president clearly can say we like what you're doing in cool engineering, so thank you for showing the way. When William H. Pickering won it, it recognized what he had done to put an explorer in orbit. His JPL stellar home run, Explorer 1. Explorer yeah. 1. First successful cool. uh, U.S. Uh, satellite in orbit. Low Earth orbit, just like Light Sail 2, getting lower all the time. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. Couldn't resist. Uh, hey, congratulations to Ed Stone uh, on his uh, retirement from 50 years as Voyager Project Scientist. And, of course, to your fabulous guest as the new Project Scientist. Thank you. I'll pass that along to uh, Linda. Thank you. So the question for you, in two weeks, when we go over this answer, it will be our 20th anniversary planetary radio show. Do you know that, Matt? Is it something special? Well, I don't know. I'm trying to make it special. So apparently, apparently, uh, if uh, for uh, marriages, there's, you know, how they've got all the silly paper, leather, whatever gifts you're supposed to give different anniversaries. Well, 20th anniversary traditional is China. No offense, but I would not give you China. The question for you out there is, what would be an appropriate gift for a 20th anniversary of Planetary Radio? <laughs> Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. We will judge it on however we judge it. Good luck, good hunting, and have fun. You have until Wednesday, November 23, at 8 a.m. in the morning to get us this answer. And uh, tell us what you think uh, the 20th anniversary of uh, Planetary Radio should be celebrated with. Were you to give me a gift? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the gift should go yeah. to the society. I mean, I'm not going to give you a gift anyway, so it's really all hypothetical. And I'm sure you're not giving me a gift. I might have a gift for you on the 23rd. I actually have something in mind. So uh, just, oh, just, just now you'll have to stay in suspense. Um, well, I have to figure out something. I've got... Um, Here's a here's an old can. Do you want that? Yeah, no, no, no. Give it some more thought. I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there. Uh, look up in the night sky and think about fireballs, preferably in Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you and good night. Or Fireball XL5, which was my fave. Uh, he's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week for What's Up. How could I forget to announce the new contest prize? It's a stunning Voyager t-shirt from our friends at ChopShopStore.com. You'll love it. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members like me. Join our voyage by visiting planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.